This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. When I was 14, our family had just moved to Santa Barbara, California, and I fell in love with the sport of squash. Around a year in, our club hosted a professional squash tournament. That was when I learned of it, the professional squash tour. And because there wasn't that much money in the sport, you were able to stay with families that were involved in squash and passionate about the sport as well, and they would host you as you went through town. And that's what our family did for a traveling player. So I was 14 years old, and sitting at the kitchen table eating takeout burgers and fries with a 19-year-old, and he was telling me about playing on mountaintops in Brazil and cities in Asia, and it just seemed like such an amazing life adventure. And so it was a bit strange, but I told myself, at some point, I'm going to go play professional squash like this guy. The problem is once you start going to school and once you get internships and then enter the real world, it's kind of time to stop thinking about those dreams, and you're supposed to let them go. But as I started working at Bain Capital, this voice emerged, and the voice was saying, you know, you remember, you said you were going to go play pro squash. And I knew that there was a very small and shrinking window in when I could actually go chase this dream. I didn't even know if I was allowed to talk about it. It just felt crazy and selfish and weird to give up what I thought I was supposed to be working towards my whole life and do something else that was totally crazy and totally something that, in my gut, I knew I really, really had to go try. I just didn't know when. And so what I did was I started to reach out to other people around me, other folks who had left something comfortable to go do something that they cared about. And I'll never forget sitting in my office desk asking this woman, how'd you know when to jump? How'd you know when to jump? And this total stranger was telling me things not about how to go be an elite cyclist, which is what she was, but instead she was telling me about the nitty gritty, you know, the tough inner dialogue she had with herself, her thoughts of failure, of self-doubt, all of the things that you don't really see when you Google when to chase your dreams, you know, glossed over photos and living in Bali and people who dropped everything to travel or aspirational messaging that's super nice and, and soft and cuddly, but doesn't really talk about what the realities look like. When I hung up the phone, I sketched a cover page to a book I called When to Jump. I played squash nights and weekends and at lunch and before work, after work. I joined the pro tour part-time. So I was going to Chicago at night and back at my desk the next morning, taking night trains to New York and coming back right afterwards. And in May of 2014, a year and a half after I talked to that banker-turned-cyclist, I put my life into a bag, I bought a one-way ticket to New Zealand, and I jumped. And before I knew it, I had spent nearly two years traveling across a quarter million miles or so, competing in a sport I loved. And along the way, the community was born. So my name is Mike Lewis, and currently I'm the founder and CEO of When to Jump a global curated community all around when to go do what you really want to go do in life. My guest this week is Cheryl Sandberg, the chief operating officer of Facebook and the founder of Lean In. Cheryl Sandberg and I are second cousins. Our grandparents were brother and sister. They were two of eight kids, so there's a lot of us second cousins around. 
And throughout college, and especially as I started my job at Bain, I would always look to Cheryl for job and career advice, first when she was at Google and, and then now at Facebook. And Cheryl just has some amazing insights and perspectives as she thinks about a career. Uh, she quotes her colleague at work, Lori Goler, when she says, you know, careers are like jungle gyms. They're not linear staircases. The other thing that Cheryl has told me is that you should prioritize learning and that it's good to feel a little bit scared. In fact, one of her favorite lines is, what would you do if you weren't afraid? Here's our conversation when I visited her at the Facebook Global Headquarters in Menlo Park, California. She is a former chief of staff for the Treasury Secretary in the U.S. government, with a jump to tech to a young company called Google, and seven years later, perhaps an even bigger jump within the tech industry to a social networking company called Facebook, teaming up with its then 23-year-old founder and CEO, behind a mission to connect the world. And while Sheryl Sandberg has served as the chief operating officer for Facebook for nearly a decade, all that is just her day job. Her 2013 book, Lean In, Women, Work, and the Will to Lead, has sold millions of copies, spawned a community that covers over 33,000 circles, reaching a few hundred thousand members worldwide, and is the author of her most recent book, Option B, Facing Adversity, Building Resilience, and finding joy. Cheryl, you have jumped and continue to jump in so many unique and powerful ways. You are a role model and pioneer for so many men and women worldwide. And I really appreciate you joining me on the When to Jump podcast today to share your experience jumping. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for coming, Mike. Excited to be here and to, I guess, jump into When to Jump. (laughs) Well, let's get into it then. To start with, what's the most important jump of your life? (laughs) Wow. Probably from the government to Silicon Valley. So I went to the government um, in 1996. So I served as a political appointee in the second term of Bill Clinton's administration. And, you know, political appointee means that when, like, the next person wins, unfortunately, the next guy wins. We still haven't had a woman. But when the next guy wins you turn over the keys to the next person. And so that meant in 2001, I needed a job. And I never really thought I would work in the government forever. And the nature of political appointments is, you know, the civil service is there forever. It's a career move. Political appointees go in and out. But still, when that moment comes, you know, you have to find a job. I never thought I'd work in the private sector ever. I was raised in a family where my father was a doctor, my mother was a teacher. And, you know, they thought, you did good things in the world, and they weren't always sure that business was good. Doctor was good. Nonprofits were good. Teaching was good. And businesses could be good, but weren't always. And so I didn't grow up with, you know, tremendous love for business. So I thought I'd only ever work in the nonprofit world or in the government or in something I felt was for good. But where I sat at, you know, the U.S. Treasury those years, 96 to 2000, those were the years of the, the tech boom. And that was the start of Yahoo, and that was AOL, and that was when the internet was happening and people were using it. And for the first time, it seemed like, you know, more impact, to me at least, was happening through business than even through, you know, some of the other industries you could work in. And so I decided to make the jump and really change something that, and changed my expectations. Um, So I moved out here. It was the tech crash. Hewlett Packard had just fired thousands of people. There were no jobs. Um, It took me almost 10 months 
from the time I moved out here to start working at Google. And in those 10 months, there was, you know, some free time and some downtime, which I was fortunate to be able to afford to take. But there was also a lot of rejection and some nervousness of like, would I ever get a job in this industry? And that jump eventually worked out. I went to Google and eventually got me here. And I think there is a memorable story you've told before around making a spreadsheet of all the different things that you could do and what are the pros and cons. And someone says something around a rocket ship and, and just stop thinking about it. What was that like? <laughs> yeah, well, finally I had job offers. And I want I don't want to gloss over how hard the jump was, right? Yeah. That I remember one of my early interviews, I interviewed with um, someone who was running a company and the CEO said to me, I would never hire anyone like you. <laughs> <laughs> And I said, well, then why'd you take the meeting? And the person said, because a board member asked me to. Oh, my God. Which shows the power of connections that not everyone has, that we have to work harder to make people have. And I think at some point we can talk about the Goldie Scholarship Program I yes. just launched, which is about helping other people jump. But so I was lucky. I came from Treasury. I had the connections to get that meeting. But boy, did that meeting not go well. And um, so I definitely had a lot of rejections along the way, but then I had a couple of job offers. One was at Google and one was at another company. And I made a spreadsheet. And the other company, the job was very specific. You know, I was going to have a job. I had a team to manage. I had goals to hit. I knew who I reported to, all of that. And the job offer at Google was come be the general manager of a business unit. But there were no business units. <laughs> And they kept saying they were going to form business units, but they didn't know when. And so it just felt not real. And I made my spreadsheet, and Eric Schmidt had helped me get interviews at Google and was the part of the process of bringing, of bringing me in. And I said, Eric, I, this job makes no sense. I have no job here. You know, all of all my criteria. Sure. And Google meets none of them. And he put, except I love Google, and I liked Google better than the other company. And he's put his hand on my piece of paper, and he said... When you're offered a sheet on a rocket ship, you don't ask what seat you just get on. And I think before that, he said, don't be an idiot. <laughs> and, you know, he was right. I was basically being, I mean, if not an idiot, certainly risk averse and jump averse, jump adverse. And even the jump to Google, I guess at that point was a jump because the job was so unspecified. And now what I tell people is that often the opportunity lies in the gray. If everything is perfectly figured out at the company you're going to, well, maybe they don't need you as much. Sometimes taking the job, or even when you have a job, taking on the project or creating the project, finding the zone where things are not figured out, where you have to provide the structure, where you don't only have to answer the questions, you have to ask them. That's where the real opportunity lies. And to go back a second on the rejection piece, when you were pre-joining Google and you're not getting a job offer, you're not getting past that first interview, a lot of folks, when they think of making a jump, that's kind of where it ends. They, they pack up their bags, they go back to D.C. or where they came from. What, what pushed you to just keep going forward and say, I'm, I'm going to stick it out? Well, I didn't have a job in D.C. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That makes it easier. So that makes, that makes it easier. Um, but I do think sometimes, and look, not everyone has the financial flexibility to make jumps all the time. And you know that and you recognize that in your book. And there are all kinds of jumps. And there are emotional jumps and relationship jumps and creative jumps and how you spend your free time and the jump to have a child, right? And career jumps. There are times when you need to let go of the old and almost burn, burn the ships to get to the new. And, you know, the turnover in the government burned the ships for me. I didn't have a job in D.C. Now, it would have been easier to get one. 
I had some government experience. So I don't know if people in DC, when I was interviewing them, would have looked at me and said, I would never hire someone like you because they hired lots of people like me. Um, but sometimes you really have to let go of the old to move on to the new. Wow. And you mentioned a lot of different types of jumps that people take, and that's exactly right. There's a there's a lifestyle jump, there's a career jump, there's a personal emotional jump. One of the things I think Facebook does a really interesting job of is this idea of promoting internal jumps. When you think of working in today's 2017 world, how do you, and you are overseeing a large company that keeps growing, full of millennials and young professionals, but also people of all backgrounds and ages, what does it mean to promote this idea of saying, hey, if, you, if, you're, if you're great and, and you, you like us, we want to find you a job that might mean jumping, but it stays within Facebook. How important is that? It's really important. My favorite quote on this is from Lori Goler, who's our head of HR at Facebook. And she says, you know, careers are not a ladder, they're a jungle gym. And I think this is so important because I think the old version of careers was you took a job, you took the next job, you took the next job. It was a straight ladder up. There were no choices. But now... You want to move sideways, backwards, down. Um, one of the most important times that I see people not jump when they should is about changing either industries or functions. So, you know, they work in tech or they work in banking or they work in retail and they want to change industries or functions. They work in sales, they work in marketing, but they'd rather work in sales or marketing. They're a lawyer, but they'd rather be in the business development side. There are so many times I've seen people not make that jump because they're afraid they're, and I'm doing this in air quotes, you can't see me, but move backward. So let's say you're a lawyer and you've decided you don't want to be a lawyer. You'd really rather be in marketing. And you're 35 or 45 or however old, but let's say 35 for this example. And you've decided you want to be in marketing, but you're at a certain level and you've never done marketing. So no one's going to hire you at that level. So you need to take a step back, meaning go down a couple levels. If you can financially afford it and you're going to work the next, I don't know, 30 years who cares about going down, right? right? Absolutely. And people do that all the time. Yeah. Sometimes when you want to jump, you know, you're not going to get the same position. I went from being treasury. I was the chief of staff. It was a position with at least some responsibility. I had a lot less responsibility when I first joined Google. No one was going to make me the, there was no chief of staff. But if there was that job, no one was giving it to me because I hadn't worked in tech. I came in as what we called a business unit general manager. There was no job. The first team I ran at Google had four people. The treasury had, you know, tens of thousands. Right. But I wanted to work in tech and I needed to earn my way up. And so being willing to move any way on that ladder to get where you want, to roll up your sleeves and do the real work will make a huge difference. And I think also when you think of making a jump, will it not work out if it doesn't provide full certainty that this will happen if I jump and I won't do it. Well, that's silly because it probably gets you closer to what you want to be doing. So if Google didn't work out, it did. But if it didn't work out, you'd at least be in the ballpark of what you're interested in. Well, I at least would have gotten some tech experience right. and I would no longer only be from the government and I would have been from, I would have had tech experience. Right. Fast forwarding a bit, a few years and you now, you know, Google has grown. There are business units. You are overseeing more than four people. There was a different type of jump, which is kind of a jump within the industry. Describe what was going through your mind as you decide, which now, again, in hindsight, everything's 2020. It's a no-brainer. I think no-brainer is a silly word because at some point in time, it was a full-brainer, right, to decide, <laughs> okay, I'm going to think about 
taking a real risk. And it wasn't leaving tech, but it was a huge, huge you know, gamble. What was going through your mind? What pushed you forward in that jump? I've been at Google six and a half years. I was running the what was the online global sales and operations. So it was starting with four people on AdWords, but growing to all the community operations, all the sales operations, all the online sales uh, for the company and operations, things like book scanning. And, you know, my team at Google was about 4,000 people. And Google was big and thriving. And I loved the people I worked with and I loved my team. I also think I needed a new challenge. And I met Mark Zuckerberg. And Facebook was when I joined 550 people, but I met him, you know, six months before that. So even four months, who knows, less before that. So it was less. And Facebook was this thing that. I had started using, but really people still thought of it as a college site where like you shared pictures for, you know, college kids. Sure, yeah. It was interesting and I was seeing things I hadn't seen before. Um, it had real identity. Now I know that's hard to imagine. Now we're all ourselves right. online with our pictures and faces, sure. but at that point you didn't put your picture online. You know, mm-hmm. the famous the famous cartoon was on the internet, no one knows you're a dog. And the dog <laughs> was at the computer. So we hit our real identity online. But then there was Mark. And Mark was 23. You know, who knew what to expect, right? I'm 15 years older. I have two babies and, you know, running a much larger thing. But I really believed in Mark's vision. He wanted to connect the world. And he was determined. And that was a big part of the jump. And there's a part in the forward for my book, where you talk about this question you go back to of, of what would you do if you weren't afraid? It, did that hit you during that process was, wow, this is terrifying. And that's why I'm going to do it. So I didn't have that question yet. Okay. Because that's a, that's a Facebook question. It's a Facebook poster. Um, I do think that I wanted to be part of building something again and from the ground up. And the opportunity to partner with Mark to help bring people's real identity online, to help people connect, felt like a once-in-a-lifetime thing that I couldn't, I couldn't pass up. Wow. Yeah, that makes, that makes sense, at least in, in hindsight. Looking back, a no-brainer. Switching gears a little bit just to everything you do outside of Facebook. You've been an outspoken advocate uh, for men and women to lean in in their careers and also in their lives. Why, why is that something you spend so much time championing? And, and for someone who doesn't need to have these public extracurriculars, you know, a lot of people would be just content going to work, come home. Why, why lean in? Lean in comes from my own experience of watching uh, what is the stagnation for women at the top in leadership roles in every industry. So I joined the workforce in 1991. There were men ahead of me, right? All the senior jobs, or most of the senior jobs were filled by men. But when I looked alongside me, there were equal numbers of men and women coming out of college. And I thought, as I progressed in my career, my generation would change that. But it didn't happen. And over the last 12 years, really numbers for women at the top of industries have stalled. And those are the formative 12 years for me in the workplace. And so I was seeing it happen. And I just believe that a more equal world, and that means a more equal and diverse world at the top. It means at every level. It means we need women and underrepresented minorities in the fields where they're not in, like computer science. But it really means leadership roles. Roles where, you know, everything from president of our country to members of Congress to members of the Senate to heads of every industry, we have equal representation. 
And right now we suffer from what I think of as the tyranny of low expectations. Yeah. You know, in uh, 2012, women got 20% of the seats in the U.S. Senate. 50% of the population with 20% of the seats, that's not a takeover. It's a gap. It's a gap. But we should be saying it's a gap. But no, all the headlines were screaming out, women take over the Senate. Women take over the Senate. 20% is not a takeover. 20% is a problem. And so we are really in a place where we absolutely have to get everyone to lean in so that women underrepresented minorities can have their share of voice at the tables where decisions are made. And as you pursued kind of this other uh, voice that you feel needs to be, to be shared, and uh, most recently in your, in, in your last book, Option B, you talk a lot about uh, things that you don't necessarily think are, are inherent or necessarily could be built, like resilience within people. Uh, for any person, whether it's a, a woman that's going for a seat at the table or whether it's a person who just lost their job or a loved one, what does that mean to look inside yourself and say, you know what, the way things are aren't set in stone and I can build some of these traits that we kind of thought were always going to be the way they were? Well, the first thing I think we need to do is recognize the biases that exist in everyone else and in ourselves and then change them. So here's what we know. When men and women perform at equal levels, Everyone, including the individuals, will overestimate the male's performance a little bit and underestimate the women's performance. That's also true on race. Well, then if we think we're meritocracy and we promote or give opportunities based on merit, the person who gets overestimated is always going to get promoted or most of the time over the person who's underrepresented. And so that's what's happening. And so we need to make that adjustment. What also matters is how we attribute success. When a man succeeds, we, and he, so the, himself and all the people around him, attribute that success to his own skills. When a woman succeeds, we, and she, attributes that success to working hard help from others and getting lucky. Well, that's a very big difference because if you succeed because of your own skills or you think someone's succeeding because of their skills, you promote them. If you succeed because of luck or help, you don't know if that's going to happen again. Yeah. And so... That's why we promote men based on potential and women based on what they've already achieved. And that needs to change. And so we can recognize these biases. Sure. We can change them. We also have a tremendous bias against leadership in girls and women. The word bossy. You know, I've asked hundreds of rooms with thousands of people in many countries in the world. Men, raise your hand if you were called bossy as a little boy. And the answer is very few hands go up. Girls, women, raise your hand if you were called bossy as a little girl, and all the hands go up. Now, why is that? We know that little boys are just as assertive as little girls. It's just that when a little boy is assertive, he's a leader. When a little girl is assertive, she's bossy. We can change that, right? We can walk up to little girls and say, that little girl's not bossy. That little girl has executive leadership skills. It's incredible because just yesterday I was talking to a friend of mine, a, a young woman who said, I think I really did well. I had an interview on TV for something, and, and I, I think I just I did exactly what I'd practiced. And then she corrected herself. She said, geez, that probably sounds a little bit over the top. I really, and I said, this is, that's, that is totally fair game if I were to say that. And here's my friend saying this caveat and you know, qualifying it. It just seems silly that, that that happens, but it does. And I think being able to voice that's really important. Um, and let's go to one other part. And this is kind of going to the final lap here. But uh, one part of the conversation you brought up earlier, which is that, listen, not everyone is in a position to take a jump right now. And certainly in the research I've done and for this book, I think it's very important to show the broad spectrum of where people are in life. And yet there are 
places where we can improve society. We can provide things like the Goldie Scholars Program. We can um, we can give people a better and more equitable shot at making a jump at some point. What are you doing about that? Because it sounds like you've been very busy on that front. I have very tragically lost my husband two and a half years ago, and he would have turned 50 on October 2nd. And so on that day, his brother and mother and I launched the Goldie Scholars Program. And the idea behind it is that we have these incredibly talented kids who come from very underprivileged backgrounds who are making it to college, but they are not graduating at the same rate, and they're not getting the same job opportunities that other kids in college are. And so we're trying to help solve some of those problems. One of those problems is that while they're often getting full scholarships or close to full scholarships, other things are not covered. And other things can be food. There's huge food insecurity for college kids in our country. Clothing they need, a computer, basics for home. Some of their families are struggling. So some of these kids are dropping out of college because their parents have a $200 bill they can't pay. And so we're giving them just financial support for everything they need, including full books, which Chegg is nicely donating to a computer, to spending money so that they can eat, clothe themselves, and help out their families. Um, We're giving them a lot of financial support over summers because one of the things Richard Barth noticed, we did this with camp, is that when they went to D.C. many years ago, they looked at all the internships. And while Kip is almost entirely underrepresented minority kids, all the kids they saw were white. And why is that? Because the other kids couldn't afford to take those summer jobs, right? If you take a summer job in another city, you've got to fly there. You've got to feed yourself. You've got to house yourself. And if your parents couldn't afford to help you, and so we're doing that. We're giving kids the summer stipend so that they can take a job anywhere. And I think most importantly, we're giving the mentorship. My husband, Dave, helped so many people. He mentored so many people that we are taking his network and all of his friends and family have so lovingly jumped in. And we're going to pay our our Goldie Scholars one-on-one with mentors. And those mentors are going to help us meet with them on a regular basis, set their goals, and help them and help them get through college, identify and achieve their dreams, but also connect them with the summer jobs they need to get the, the kinds of experience that lead to the jobs they deserve. And I think that's such a big piece, what you mentioned around mentorship, which is that no jump or soon-to-be jump or someday jump is made by yourself in a vacuum. You know, if you're if you're at home listening to this and you haven't told someone what that little voice is in your head, you probably would benefit from just finding that person. It sounds like the Goldie Scholars Program is going to do that for, for kids, which is great. That's right. Finally, and as you know, you are my first guest on this podcast show. So honored. No big deal there, I'm jump, sure. That's my jumping into when to jump joke. <laughs> exactly. I really appreciate, A, your time, the, you know, the, the offer to write the forward to this book that we both believe is important and hopefully will make jumps possible for a variety of different people. Uh, when you think of your younger self, what advice would you give to a younger Sheryl Sandberg <laughs> about taking a jump? Two things. The first is don't plan it all out. If I had planned my career from my younger self to here, I wouldn't be here. Because when I graduated from college, there was no internet and Mark Zuckerberg was in elementary school. (laughs) But that's really important. I did plan it. I was going to be in the nonprofit sector. I was going to work in the government. I was going to go in and out of the government and I was going to work in nonprofits in the other time. And I would have missed Google and Facebook. I would have missed marrying Dave and having the children I have. I would have missed so much. And do not try to make plans because then you miss the big opportunities. Have dreams. 
I tell people long-run dream and short-term plan. Know what you want to do generally decades from now and short-term plan. And then I have, and then, you know, the second piece of advice is don't be so nervous. I was so nervous when I was looking for a job and I understand that it worked out for me and it's always not going to work out. But I also understand that that anxiety doesn't help anyone do better. That, you know, enjoy the process. When you're thinking about when to jump or a jump you might make, you get to think about yourself. You get to learn from other people as much as possible. And I learned this from losing my husband. Every day is so precious. The more we can appreciate and enjoy every day, the better off we are. Amazing. And I think that just about wraps it up. I don't know if I could add any wisdom to uh, to top it off. So Cheryl Sandberg, COO of Facebook, founder of Lean In. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Mike Lewis, founder of When to Jump. Thank you for jumping and inspiring so many people around the world to jump. Thanks for listening to When to Jump. If you enjoyed the podcast, feel free to subscribe. And if you don't mind, drop us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Good reviews and ratings can help other people discover the show, along with just sharing the word the old-fashioned way with friends or coworkers, classmates, dog walkers, cousins, sisters, brothers, next-door neighbors, milkmen, anyone you think might find this interesting. We have a bunch of great guests coming up on the podcast, including Ariana Huffington next week. The When to Jump book comes out in January 2018. To learn more about our platform and community, you can visit whentojump.com. I'm Mike Lewis. I'll see you next week. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah. That's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.